We are wrapping up uh, the series on Jacob this morning. Um, Jacob is still going to be alive, and when we come back after the Resurrection Day, uh, he's going to be more of a minor character in the account that takes place. It's going to focus more on Judah and Joseph. So keeping that in mind, just thought this was a great ending point for that series, and then uh, we're going to go back to Luke for Lent uh, and talk about the road to Jerusalem and culminating with the uh, account in Luke of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that's where we're going for the next couple of months. And I hope uh, you like that. If not, we're going there anyway. Let us uh, turn to Genesis 35, if you're not already there. I'll begin reading in verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went to labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Onai. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set upon a pillar, set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padam Aram. And Jacob became, uh, came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Let's pray. Father, according to the riches of your glory, grant that we would be strengthened with power through the Spirit in our inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, that we may be rooted and grounded in your love, that we may have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that we might be filled with your fullness. And so accomplish this through the reading and preaching of your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, As many of you know, I was uh, converted while I was a sophomore in college. It was actually during uh, winter break. And so it was some in a sense that uh, I really was looking forward to a new life, a very different life. And I thought that this life would be... um, perhaps easier than it ended up being, because shortly after I returned uh, to college, my grandmother died, my mom's mom. 
passed away. And, you know, we didn't live all that far away, and we would regularly do, make visits over to, to visit Grandma. Um, but it was no surprise that she died, because Grandma loved her cigarettes. And not just any cigarettes, camel cigarettes. Okay, and if my mother tried to somehow soften the blow of the of the cigarettes uh, by buying ones with filters, Grandma would just chop those things right off. Okay, she was it was not a surprise that she she died, and it's tragic that she died. And it wasn't much longer after that that I was in my dorm room uh, watching the little tiny black and white TV that my mother had given me because my grades didn't, weren't horrible, and I watched the space shuttle explode in midair. I think most people who are old enough remember where they were when they first knew of that. They first saw that. And so that was just really one of those things that really leaves an indelible mark upon your soul watching this. And it was just a few months later that my ex-girlfriend, whom I was still sort of, I was still friends with and still went over the house and all these things, her father fell asleep at the wheel on his way home from work, hit a tree, and was dead. So all of these things, just boom, body shots, disappointments came. We sometimes think that when grace is renewed, whether you know, we first become a Christian or, or there's a time in which our faith is renewed, and, and you know, we think that somehow disappointment will not find us, and yet, tragically, it does. That's exactly what happens to Jacob here. He had gone through uh, this period of wandering, so to speak, even in the promised land. God had restored him to grace after he lost sight of it. And now grief will come through a series of profound disappointments. But our big idea is that God uses disappointment to set our hearts on his purposes. So let's start with the first of those disappointments and the reality that God removes our idols so that we set our hearts upon Christ. So we have the renewal of grace that Moses now records this strange, so to speak, southward migration. We don't know how long this takes. It could be a span of many years. Moses sort of gaps a lot of this. He doesn't give us... Uh, you know, time signifiers so we know when all of these things happen. And as we... Um, and after Resurrection Day, as we get back to this, we'll see that actually this is out of chronological order because there are things that are going to happen to Joseph that take place outside of Shechem. And Shechem had already been destroyed. So Moses is not concerned with the chronological order like you know many of our historians today are. He's, he's arranging his topics for a theological purpose. There's something here that we need to know. This journey becomes, quickly becomes a trail of tears that, that tests repentant Jacob. And in fact, ends up redirecting, I think, the heart of Jacob. It is on the way to Bethlehem that his pregnant wife, Rachel, goes into labor. Now, maybe you're like me. Maybe you read that, heard that and go, what is he doing traveling with a very pregnant wife? Why hadn't he just stopped for a while? You know, why is now the time that he decides he must move south out of Bethel and into Bethlehem? Why now? And the scripture doesn't tell us why now. Just that it is. And it is in the midst of this pregnancy 
this labor that says that she has a hard labor common in that day. What's significant here, however, is that Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. Remember, this is the one whose name meant you, not livestock. Okay, This is the pretty one. This is the one that he worked 14 years to get to be his wife. This is the one he had set his hopes and his dreams upon. His idol. I mentioned John Newton earlier in the worship service, and I'm right now I'm reading a biography of Newton, and one of the things that keeps popping up in his journal is something that, that reminds me a lot of Jacob. Because he keeps writing about how his fear is, is that his wife is an idol in his life, that he loves his wife too much. Amazing that he would be aware enough of that to actually be concerned about something like that, that he might treasure his wife possibly more than he might treasure Jesus himself. And many people who knew John Newton were like, what's so great about Polly? <laughs> Polly was not someone who would have been a trophy wife. She was not known for her beauty. In fact, she was also known not to be all that bright. And yet, Newton loved her above every other earthly thing. Very, in a sense, very different from Jacob, and yet he struggled with the same temptation to have his wife the first in his heart. It is in this makeshift camp that she gives birth to his twelfth son before dying herself of childbirth. And we're, we're, Moses wants you to remember what took place in Genesis 31. He wants you to remember that she is the one who took her father's idols. She is the one who hid them underneath herself while, he, while her father Laban was inspecting the tent. And he wants you to remember that Jacob said, anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. She came under the curse for her idolatry, and yet God in His mercy delayed the execution of that curse until such a time as the twelfth son of Jacob is born. Think of God's relentless grace in the midst of this family because God used Rachel to build that family. Oh, remember, she was an idolater too. She not only had the idols, okay, that she stole from her father, but she also had children as an idol. Remember, we we mentioned it again last week. Give me children or I will die. Okay, so she too is this functioning uh, idolater, and yet God uses her just as he uses Jacob to build the whole, the Holy family, from his perspective, holy family, though they often did not live like it. So she had the same problem, but with different details. In her dying breath, she names him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But something significant happens here that is unlike every other time Jacob had a child. He changed the name. Changed his name to Benjamin, son of my right hand. This is the only child that Jacob names out of all the 13 whose names we know. There may be additional children. Probably the reason that 
that Moses put Dinah in there is because of her, the significance of the story that would come later in her life. So he may have had other daughters. We don't know. But this is the only child he names. He is again reasserting his place as the head of the family. He is finally doing what he should have been doing all along and exercising leadership over his family. Okay? Jacob. Jacob, who needed to turn his heart from his idol to God and to God's promises. And what happens here in, in, in Providence is that profound loss can be God's means to set our hearts upon Christ. I'm reminded of Hurricane Katrina. When I was, when I was thinking through all of this, my mind just kind of went back to one picture that I remember from Hurricane Katrina. Remember, these people had just undergone profound loss. Everything had been washed away by the floods. And I remember one sign that sat on a heap of refuse. This is not my life. My life is hid in Christ. They, they, they were alluding to Colossians chapter 3, which you have part of it there in your notes. And Paul says to the Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Again, seek them, set your minds on things that are above, so we're to... Seek these things, we're to set our minds upon these things, not upon the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so how this functions is, is while Jacob himself struggled with laying this aside, he struggled with not thinking about this particular earthly thing, God removed it from him so that he can begin to ponder the things that are above, to ponder the promises of God that he'd already been given that are yet to be fulfilled. And so for us, there are times when those things that we cherish perhaps a little too much are removed from us, and that is an opportunity for us to set our minds where it ought to be with Christ, because Christ is our life. And not the things that sometimes we get confused with our life, our homes, our kids, our cars, our technology, our country, whatever it might be. We have to, we have to this is an opportunity to redirect our focus to the heavenly places where we live with Christ even now and while we wait for Him to appear in His glory. And so profound loss can be a means for us to set our hearts upon Christ. So grief is an opportunity to do this. To put our heart, our hopes on Him who keeps all of His promises. The second is far more disturbing. That is that God removes our power so that we'll rely on Christ's power. They finish, after her death and burial, they finish their journey to Bethlehem. And they stay there as a family for an undisclosed period of time. We don't know how long they are there. They live near the Tower of Eder 
And Eder is Hebrew for flock. And so it's a tower in which a shepherd could go in and, and look far away and watch over the different flocks and, and kind of not have to be on the ground, but this is an opportunity for them to kind of get the above-ground view to see problems in the distance so that he can begin to address these problems if need be. So this is where they're staying. Their, their, their livestock are outside of Bethlehem at this point in time in the fields. This is where they live. And this is when another a period of incredible disappointment comes into the life of Jacob. Because Reuben, his firstborn, which the genealogy reminds us of, he was the firstborn of Leah. He comes and he defiles Bilhah. We don't really think about these things. This was an action that was prompted more by family politics than love or lust. Bruce Walke uh, puts forth the idea that perhaps he was afraid that Bilhah, being the handmaid, uh, the nursemaid of his favorite wife, Rachel, in Rachel, after Rachel's death, that somehow she would become the first wife out of memory to Rachel. I don't really know about that. I want to go, I think, with the better idea, uh, the, more, the more consistently biblical idea um, that is found in places like we read in, in uh, 2 Samuel, where this is an act of usurpation. It was, a, it was a customary practice in that day to display your newfound power and authority by taking the concubines of your predecessor. And so Absalom does that. He comes into Jerusalem. He's, he says, I am the king, and David is fleeing. And what does he do? What does his advisor say? Take the concubines, go up in a tent, and do this so all of Israel will see, and they will know that you are the king and your father is nothing. And so Reuben is doing something very similar to that. He's taking Bilhah in, a, in an attempt to rebel against his father, perhaps because of his father's newfound strength as a leader of his family. He's resisting the authority of his father, and he's trying to become the one. He's trying to become, well, basically, he's not waiting until his father dies. He's saying, I'm the firstborn, but I want my power now. I want to be the leader of this family now. He's saying, I am the man. And so Reuben dishonors Jacob, not just privately, but for all the, before all of the family. Part of me was going, okay, now why is this here? Hopefully, hopefully you have these thoughts too, right? Why in the world is this here? Partially is to explain why it is that Reuben is not going to be the firstborn, and we'll get to that in a minute. But think about the original audience. What kept happening in the wilderness? People kept trying to usurp the God-given authority of Moses. Except there were no concubines involved. But they kept rebelling, whether it was Korah, whether it was Aaron and... Um, his sister's name escapes me for a moment. Yeah, Miriam. Good, thank you. Okay, whether whichever one it was, there were these repeated attempts to usurp Moses, and the judgment upon Reuben is supposed to stand as a warning 
against these rebellious acts. And this, this speaks to us in the sense that we, like them, have a problem with authority because we are sinners too. Is there anyone in this room who loves to be told what to do? Is there anyone here who, who thrives off of obeying uh, the orders of others? No. We struggle with authority whether it's in the workplace, whether it's a, your child at school, whether it's in the home, no matter where it is, we struggle with authority. Uh, one of the things that we continue to tell our children, and maybe in 17 or 18 years, it might even be 25 years, that hopefully they'll get, is God teaches you to live under authority first in the family. That's, that's the first place you're supposed to learn this lesson so that then when you leave the family, you're able to freely submit to the authority of others and it will go well for you. But if you never learn that lesson in the family, your life will be filled with strife because you're always going to be fighting with your boss. You're always going to be fighting with your spouse. You're always going to be fighting with Anyone who is an authority and your life will be filled with strife and misery. And so that's why there's this promise so that it will be go well for you. Honor your parents so that it will go well for you. Learn the lesson now before you invite much misery into your life. Why does he have to say this? I'm reminded of the John Cougar song. I fight authority. And authority always wins. Okay, you know, when you're fighting, you think you're going to win. You have this vain hope. You know, you're sort of like some of these protesters in these other lands. You know, they think they're going to win, but what's going to happen is you're just going to get another dictator. Life's still going to stink. You just, you know, meet meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's all it is. Okay? We need to learn this lesson. Jacob knows what happens, but initially he does not respond. He does not act upon what happens. But it is on his deathbed that he gives out the blessings to his children that there he strips him of his status, the coveted status of the firstborn. Genesis 49, unstable as water. How would you like it if your dad said that about you? You're as unstable as water. You're all over the place. No one can rely upon you. You can't build anything on you. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. This is many years later. This is decades later. What a stinging blow that must have been to Reuben. To think, in my youthful indiscretion, I did this horrible thing to my father, and I thought I got away with it. And I didn't. It is Judah, the fourth-born son. Okay? Because Reuben's gone. Well, the next two are Simeon and Levi. And it is because of their slaughter in Shechem that they are disqualified, so to speak. And it is Judah through whom the king will come. Judah is the one who will become the head of this family. Judah 
is the one who will produce the Messiah. Reuben, like his brothers, Simeon and Levi, suffer serious consequences, but they're not utterly rejected. There are consequences for our sin, even though we do not lose grace. But there are serious consequences. God showed, but God continued to show mercy to him. And by now, as we're going through this story, uh, you know, the history of the people of Israel, aren't you kind of going, boy, aren't they a mess? Aren't they real? This is Jerry Springer material, okay? These guys could go on those shows. And it would be very entertaining. And these are the people God chose to accomplish his purpose of salvation for a messed up humanity. He did not pick people who had it all together. He picked up people. He picked people who were very messed up, who were very familiar with sin, including sin like that. Because Jesus is going to save people with sin like that. People who resist authority and indulge in sexual immorality and far worse. But Jacob loses face. He loses power. This is an opportunity for him to set his hopes upon the king that is to come. And so it is with your loss of power, your loss of influence, your your loss of honor when it comes, whether it's through the slight of words, someone just kind of speaking words that dismiss you, or whether it's the, the active work, uh, active part on someone at work to undermine you, to ruin your reputation, to destroy you professionally or personally. When you lose that power, it should help you set your heart upon Christ the King because all of your power and all of your glory is very temporary and subject to change, but His is not. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, the one that would come from Judah is the one who will reign forever. There will be no one who can usurp him. There will be no one who can toss him down. There can be no protests that unseat him. He is the one who will rule and rule righteously forever and ever. Though he was mocked and humiliated upon the cross, he alone reigns forever. And so we can trust, our, we can entrust ourselves to him. And so in a disappointing world, God directs us to Christ whose authority is unchanging. Third thing is that God uses death to set our hearts on the resurrection. Eventually, Jacob moves farther south to Hebron where his father still lives. Now imagine that for a moment. We have not heard of Isaac since Jacob left town decades ago. He may have visited his father previously to this. We do not know. Moses didn't think it was important enough to tell us that. So this is the first time it's like, Isaac still alive? Yeah. 80 years later, 
He was blind when we last saw him 80 years ago. Okay, he must have been even more of a of a of a wreck. More of the you know age had diminished him, robbing him of his strength and of his power. I'm, as I read this, I'm reminded of my grandmother who died this past year. Bedridden, blind, not able to recognize her own son. Okay. That's probably Isaac. He can't get around. For 80 years he's been blind, and that would be so debilitating. And yet we see that Isaac, um, rather, Jacob moves to where Isaac is. We're not sure how long he was there before his father died. But we see that he breathes his last. And I love this. He has gathered to his people. This poetic language makes a profound theological point. Abraham, his father, was not dead. He is gathered to his father who lives in the presence of the Holy One. We see this, um, sometimes people say that the, the Old Testament doesn't talk very much about the afterlife, what happens when you die, and yet I think this is one of those places where it breaks through and we see that there's more here than meets the eye. It wasn't he was buried. He was gathered to his people. He returned to the side of his father who was at the side of his God, who was worshiping forever in the heavenlies. I think that's incredibly profound. That's incredibly hopeful. Isaac moves from the visible church to the invisible church. And we don't often have this, this concept of this that we find in Hebrews 11. For all these, meaning those who died still believing the promise, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. But catch this, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The people of God who are at His throne are not yet perfect because there are still people here who aren't there yet. There are people who are here who believe who aren't there yet, so to speak, and there are people who do not yet believe. There is a a perfect full number of people that God is going to deliver from sin and death. And those who have already tasted death and now live in the presence of God, they await us just like Abraham awaited Isaac, and just as the two of them awaited Jacob. It's kind of hokey at the end of Return of the Jedi, for those of you who like Star Wars. You know, for, you know even the Ewoks, I mean, that's really hokey. Okay, but there's this one scene, the one scene, they're all celebrating because the, the, the Empire has been destroyed and the Death Star finally has been destroyed again. 
And there you see Obi-Wan Kenobi, Yoda, and Anakin Skywalker. Together, as they once were, and now were apparently forever. Okay. And what's interesting about Anakin is that he looks very different from the Anakin for whom the Darth Vader mask had been removed. He was no longer bald and falling apart, disintegrating at the seams and made of mechanical parts. He had, in a sense, a restored body. He had a full head of hair. We are, we will, when we get our new bodies, it won't be like, you know, like you died. You know, like your body had, had fallen apart. These will be glorious, renewed bodies. There is a great hope for us at, at the resurrection. Okay? Moses writes what is important, as I said, to God's agenda. And, and part of what here is that Isaac had fulfilled, uh, you know, his part of the plan. I'm reminded of what uh, Paul said about David in Acts 13. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Okay? Eighty years before he died, he had fulfilled God's purpose for his generation. Okay? That's why we don't have that what happened in those last 80 years. He had already fulfilled what God had uh, purposed for him in his particular generation. Like, like Isaac, or sorry, uh, Isaac, like Abraham, like Moses, like David, he, he would see corruption in the grave. But notice what Paul does. He says, there is one who did not. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, he is the source of our hope that goes beyond the grave. Let's think about this for just a moment. And think about this, the whole, you know, 80 years that we know nothing about, or, or, you know, for Isaac. Most of us will live our lives and never make the headlines. Dare I say, all of us? Has anyone ever been in the headlines of the newspaper? Nobody. Okay, we're going to live and we're probably going to die without anyone knowing, you know, who we are unless they know of us. None of us here will be famous. None of us here will be rich. Okay. There won't be someone, you know, reading a book about you. Okay. 200 years after your death. Okay. In other words, I'm not John Newton. (laughs) No one's going to read a book about me. But that does not mean I did not serve God's purposes for my generation. That does not mean that in God's economy you were not significant just because you didn't make a headline and just because there's no autobiography about you. You serve God's purpose in your generation. But even better, they and us will receive these new bodies precisely because of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. 
we have a hope that extends beyond this life. Well, I do. I hope you do too. That you're not, you're not banking all of your hopes and dreams upon this life. Because it will not satisfy your every longing, every desire, every need. You were made for something far greater. But you can only receive that something greater through faith in Jesus Christ. Putting and trusting yourself into His care. So disappointment. It will come. There will be big disappointments like we see here. Death. Defilement. There'll be small disappointments. With the grief that comes the opportunity for grace, these are times in which we can set our hearts more fully on Christ and His immeasurable worth, His authority and His victory over death. In your grief, do you drown in self-pity and rage? Or do you look to our great high priest who sits upon the throne of grace, ready to assist you in that time of need, as he declares. He is willing. Are you willing to receive his help? Let's pray. Father, again, I'm reminded of the the truth of providence. And yet the details of it are mysterious to us. Though we can verbalize the doctrine of concurrence, we don't understand how it is that you ordain whatsoever comes to pass and yet do no violence to the will of the creature as our confession states. And so in the midst of the disappointment, work in us by your Spirit that we would look to Christ that we would seek Him out, that we would set our minds upon Him, that we would think upon these heavenly things, recognizing that our life is hid with Christ in God. And may You use that to sustain us in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst midst of our disappointments, even in the midst of our successes. Sustain us with that reality. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.